Welcome to the Center for Grassland Studies podcast series. I'm your host, Margo McKendry, Program Coordinator for the Center. In today's episode, I'll be speaking with Haley Wilmer, Research Rangeland Management Specialist at the U.S. Range Sheep Production Efficiency Research Unit at the USDA ARS in Dubois, Idaho. Haley, thank you so much for joining me today. Hi, Margo. Thanks for having me. As a member of the Collaborative Adaptive Range Management Project at the Central Plains Experimental Range near Nunn, Colorado, you were engaged in evaluating the effectiveness of collaborative adaptive management on rangelands for both production and conservation goals. Would you start off by explaining what adaptive management research is and then also collaborative adaptive management research, please. Sure. So um, the best way I think to think about adaptive management is certainly this project in Colorado is focused on kind of a public-private lands management context in rangelands. And the idea there is to infuse scientific process into management. So using kind of that scientific method or the problem solving method to manage complex landscapes where we're uncertain what the results of our management might be, or we're dealing with variability and uncertainty. And then when we think about collaborative adaptive management, we add that C on the front. The idea is to do that sort of work, to set goals, to apply treatments, to evaluate the effects of them in a way that engages the people who live and work on the land, the people who are responsible for managing that land, and the folks that deal with the consequences of the outcomes. You might start by adding lots of different disciplines into your science team or your goal-setting team, but also lots of different worldviews. In this project, the Collaborative Adaptive Rangeland Management Project, we brought in conservation groups, ranchers, folks from different government agencies at the state level, and also lots of different types of scientists who actually weren't that used to working with each other at all. (laughs) Certainly weren't used to sort of saying, let's let the ranchers make the research goals and questions and working with them and work with their different ways of understanding risk and timelines on the landscape to do that work together. Now, because we were doing this on an experimental range, which is kind of a piece of land that's been set aside next to the Pawnee National Grasslands called the Central Plains Experimental Range, um, we had a lot more freedom and a lot less risk to try some things out that maybe ranchers wouldn't want to do on their own places at first. So that was kind of nice. That's another piece of the science. But we're also trying to, you know, really match the real world context. So for scientists, we're bringing management into their science, and that can make them uncomfortable as well. We're taking away some of their decision-making power, goal-setting power, and and bringing in new voices. Um, But then for the managers, we're bringing in a lot more data. We joked um, in this case that it was like putting a Fitbit on the ranch. We just measured everything. Once we had that collaborative group to set the goals and ask the questions, then we were like, all right, let's find out you know, everything we can find out about how the system operates. Um, But essentially, you know, what it really boiled down to is having that collaborative group. And then a big piece of it here, because we're talking about ranch management, range management, this is a yearling cattle type of operation, is having some sort of scientific process where we have a control or some comparison to evaluate our outcomes because we can measure before and after data. A lot of times managers do that to understand the effects of what they what they did. 
Um, did my cattle gain weight? Did the grass change? But in this case, we had a whole ranch size control system. We had a second ranch that was paired where we could say, okay, we're really starting to get a feeling for the differences in outcomes from two different ranch scale management approaches, not just a, a small pasture size, you know, or a small plot size study, but this is the more real world context. And of course, there's limitations to that. You can't exactly mimic a ranch and it's only still an end of one on each case you know uh, it'd be wonderful if we had many many <laughs> ranches but it's hard to sort of match um, an ecology so that's kind of the idea not just to get better at managing for our goals goals for birds goals for beef production goals for social outcomes biodiversity but to learn and grow together and develop some of that trust communication and learn new things that we couldn't have learned without each other in the room so that's kind of the idea. Now, going back to that, um, bringing together the various groups and maybe adding to their knowledge level, things that they maybe didn't work with frequently, how would you say the researchers viewed their participation in that as well as the ranchers? How did, how did they think that went after things were kind of on their way through the project? I think we all grew a lot as professionals on the range, and we all grew a lot in terms of our understanding of the role of some of the social interactions. So building trust and respect and communication and learning why different people have different goals, really kind of an ongoing challenge for adult learners. <laughs> and over time, we started to realize, here's an example, that in some cases, scientists are they're out there on the ground monitoring, for example, for outcomes for a bird. So we applied some burning and grazing treatments that the group thought would help with um, a couple of birds that are important to the, to the goals of the project. And the scientists that are out there collecting the data are the first to realize, oh, it's not working or it's working. And so we actually had conversations about the role of emotions, the role of the sense of urgency, like, are we doing enough for this bird? And then the role of the scientists in really really coming to the stakeholders and saying, we're not doing enough, <laughs> you know, and, and so they are stakeholders, the scientists are actually stakeholders. And so we had to break that down and really question and see how knowledge gets used in this negotiation of, of management and think a lot about ourselves. So at one point I, we set up, we call it the Jane Goodall form, which is this um, online form where the scientists can like debrief what happened in a meeting or in an and that's something that happened in the project and say, you know, here's what I was experiencing and feeling and here's why I think it's going on and here's what we can do next about it. And we call it the Jane Goodall form because I'm trying to get them to think, um, you know, like a scientist who's studying sort of this group of people interacting, but also working with their data. Um, and I think that's helped us facilitate the, these meetings in a different way. And, you know, it's hard to say what the ranchers think about it. I think they are really motivated to, it's, it's really, they're very service oriented. So they're giving back to the broader community. You know, they're learning some things about birds, they're meeting new people, and hopefully they have a larger network of scientists and conservation partners. So if, if, it, if a challenge does come up, they've got more people to reach out to who understand you know, that they care about the land, but they also need to make a living and sort of the, the decisions and the risks that they deal with. So it's not all, you know, kumbaya. We went through a lot of struggles. <laughs> There's a lot of heated arguments, <laughs> but we can do that about the science. And that's kind of nice. We're not doing it about like, what kind of person are you? And do you agree with me? It's kind of like this unique 
place where it's about these data and this place that's set aside where we can do this, if that makes sense. That's fascinating. Thank you so much. What were your research questions and objectives for your range management project in Colorado? And why was collaborative adaptive management the best approach to address those research objectives? It started, I think there were a couple of different big waves at the time. It started about 2012, 2013. And at the time, range scientists in the Great Plains especially were recognizing that our controlled experimental approach to research was producing a different understanding of these range systems than what ranchers were telling us. And at the same time, we were recognizing that we needed to link up the ecological and biodiversity goals um, that society is asking of our public lands and the production and revenue generation and livelihoods pieces of the ranching system and understand those two things at the same time. There might be some times where managing for biodiversity actually benefits ranchers bottom line, and there might be other times where there's trade-offs between those two things. And then you add in another element, which is that the Great Plains, this is essentially if you drove north and then a little bit east of Denver, so you're in the driest, warmest part of the Great Plains, a short grass steppe, the weather there's really variable and drought can really be a huge threat to livelihoods. So, you know, what can researchers do to offer some some techniques or solutions or better understanding of dealing with that, those drought situations? So it was, a, it was kind of a perfect storm in terms of we definitely need to talk to these folks who are getting different outcomes than we've been getting. We need to be working at the ranch scale. We need to be working with our partners and we need to be talking about biodiversity and weather variability. You talked about some of the folks that were working with you on the project. So could you expand on who your collaborators were and how did you go about selecting them? In this case, we drew from kind of a friendly group of folks. I think there's other collaborations, maybe more real world where folks have an opportunity or because of a a process that's in place, like with an agency. This was research. So we had the ability to sort of handpick folks and we picked from NRCS and the Forest Service the state land board, which manages quite a bit of land in that part of Colorado, University Extension, a really key partner to help translate, but also to help connect our work to the broader community. We also worked with the Bird Conservancy of the Rockies, who are really partnership-based group that brings a lot to the table in terms of understanding habitat and understanding the outcomes for birds and different management practices. The Nature Conservancy, which is pretty active in conservation in eastern Colorado. The Environmental Defense Fund. Ted Toombs has been involved since the beginning of the project. Ted's really a unique stakeholder because he has a, a social science background and then also this really good understanding of conservation at the landscape or regional scale. And then actually um, the ranchers who are involved. So there are three folks from each of those groups, kind of government agency and um, conservation. We actually gave the ranchers an extra vote on the group. So there's four ranchers and those come from the Crow Valley Livestock, which is the grazing association on the west side of the Pawnee National Grasslands, one of the oldest grazing associations in the country. And they are the folks who supply the cattle. So they really understand the system. Many of their families have been here for a long time and they really have an idea of how to 
to manage the landscape and, and what's going on in terms of production. And so that group sits around and then we've got this whole group of, of nerds that sit around the outside and we've got University of Wyoming folks, we've got Texas A&M folks, the Climate Hub is there, uh, Northern Plains Climate Hub. And we've had actually, you know, just wide ranging folks that come in and then the ARS unit in Fort Collins, the Rangeland Resources Systems and Research Unit kind of leads the way on, on the ecology and range management side. And then Colorado State as well. It's a big group. It could get to feel a bit like a fishbowl. We've now linked up with UNL. Um, Mitch Stevenson out on the west side in the panhandle has connected with us and we've worked to kind of expand some of these ideas and and collaborate. So it's getting larger. I think people are getting more interested and we've had to think like, how are we going to have this meeting that used to be fun and intimate? Now there's like a ton of people just that want to see how it works. So that's been fun. I think a lot of those folks didn't necessarily work together before we started and now we have good working relationships and I've enjoyed watching that process unfold. It does sound like a really extensive group, but like you say, as people become involved in this, they see the importance, it generates excitement, and there's perhaps a willingness to continue with other types of collaborations like this later on down the road, too. Yeah, and that would be one measure of success. That's actually one way that we track if we're learning and building trust is our folks doing other things with each other off the grid. Are they applying to grants? Are, are they starting new projects? And um, I think we've seen a little bit of that. That's perfect. Good. Now, could you provide an overview of the Colorado project, including some of the treatments and results that you were seeing? Sure. So I'll just describe it this way. Take a 15,000 acre ranch on the short grass step and divide it up into 10 pairs of pastures that are about 320 acres each. So each pair is pretty similar ecologically. And then we bring that group of stakeholders, we call them the stakeholder group. There's other words and there's other settings where folks don't like the word stakeholder, but in this case, we call them the stakeholder group. We brought them together for initial meeting where they set the goals for the project. And we said, okay, you can have a herd of yearling steers. In this case, 244 or so is the stocking rate that would be sort of a moderate stocking rate traditionally. And the grazing season is mid-May through the end of October. We're not going to change that. We're not going to build any more fences. We're not going to get cows. We have these steers. And you've set these goals. We'll remind you that you set goals for beef production and drought resilience. You've set goals for biodiversity conservation of the grass and also um, some specific birds who range from real short grass, um, mountain plover, and thick-billed longspur, which require pretty short structured habitat up through others like the grasshopper sparrow that like to nest in shrubs. So you're looking at a suite of grassland birds there. And you set these goals for social learning. You want to build trust. You want to learn new things together and you want to get that information off the station out into the world. Those are your goals. You're sort of the sideboards. Go at it. Move those cattle around, light some fires, help us understand what you want to do. We'll measure it. Come back. You know, we correspond with folks by email and we have this really cool report that goes out that Melissa Johnson does every week over the summer, you know, with all, all the hydrology information and grass information. We'll gather it up and for the next 10 years, we're going to see if we can do better um, in our goals relative to that control ranch that operates pretty much like the Pawnee National Grassland. It's a season-long continuous sort of system at the same stocking rate. And that's the trick. Um, the density of the cattle might change in the CARM pastures, the experimental pastures, but the stocking rates on the two sides of the fence are the same at the season-long ranch scale. So we have a conflated stocking rate. And folks decided that they wanted to use a rotational grazing system and they 
try to rest two pastures every year as a drought reserve. Um, and they decided to group all those cattle into one herd and to rotate them for the first eight years. So they meet quarterly. And some of the things that we've been learning, in addition to the trust building and things that I talked about previously, will cover um, right away, there was a trade off between this rotational grazing, this more dense grazing system and cattle gains, our cattle were not gaining as much as the controls for a long time. And so we've really had to work through that. In other cases, we have noticed that we managed to create the right type of habitat for, for example, thick-billed longspur, but in the wrong place. Those birds actually had a few pastures that they like to return to. So we had to prioritize, you know, place-specific knowledge of the pastures um, for those birds. And then another thing that we learned really was especially around the use of fire in this system. So there is historic fire in the short grass stuff, but the grass is not very tall. Um, And folks here have lived through the Dust Bowl. Like they're very aware of the risks of losing forage. And so that idea of burning off what you have seems very high risk to folks with that long-term perspective, where a scientist can run a couple of experiments and say, hey, our p-value is showing. We have benefits to to cattle nutrition and to birds. Let's just do it. Um, So we had to kind of deal with, we called it the burning question, sort of how do we assess risk and um, do we get enough benefit from a fire uh, relative to the risk? So those are some of the things that we've sort of worked with. And I'll talk about in my talk sort of how we dealt with them and how we're, we're still learning. I don't think we've, you know, solved range management. It's a very small scale, but within that kind of experimental design, there's been a lot new opportunities to talk about those old ideas, rotational grazing and fire and resting um, things in pastures for drought. Thank you so much. How has the fact that you've used collaborative adaptive management affected the message and recommendations that you are able to communicate to rangeland managers? In some ways, we're bringing the science back around. You know, if we have Forest Service or BLM managers, they've been collaborating with ranchers for a long time. Collaboration is really um, the way rangelands work because there's so many different groups of people with different goals for our public and private lands. I've given the presentation and managers will come up and say, yeah, it's about time you guys recognized um, in the science world just how much we do. But I think what it's important to remember is there may be times when those data, when they're sort of rigorously developed, or there's thresholds or triggers or, you know, a scientific understanding of the system where we can demonstrate that where it can benefit managers sort of in that broader decision-making context. So it's probably more usable. It's probably more realistic, but because we've tried to maintain some of that scientific um, experimental design, it might be, you know, a little bit more rigorous or speak to those who would look for sort of peer-reviewed knowledge of what's going on to justify what's happening, you know, especially in a public lands management context. So you know, I think more people are trying to do work this way and engage with rural communities. And that comes with its own challenges and some of its own risks. But it's really important, I think, that we sort of connect at the local level with the folks that are going to be using our science so that they have a better understanding of the limitations of the findings, where it comes from, um, and how they might use it. Very good. As a social scientist, what have you learned from the Colorado study about conducting collaborative adaptive management research? I think trust has to come first (laughs) before people can learn. People are not like, you cannot plug a USB drive of new information into people and just change their minds, right? They walk in with their own understanding of the system and really have to see that they're I'll say I have to see that my own mental model is not matching up with the reality I'm seeing on the ground before I'm, you know, really kind of forced to rethink if what I know is true or things operate the way I think they do. And then just on the logistical side, 
we really undervalue some of the facilitation skills. You know, if you go to a, a well-planned meeting, you don't even know how much time the facilitator is taking to put that together. And I think we can get a little bit excited about the science and forget about the fact that there's this whole piece of interacting with the human species. <laughs> and doing science with humans means there should be good food. There should be a fun experience. There should be time out in the field. And, you know, every time we do a tour, we could stand around in a pasture. Our conversations are much more rich and heartfelt. And sometimes like things that you didn't even think people would share come out and that forms sort of how we're thinking about the goals for the project. A few years ago, we had a chance to do a tour before COVID on a rancher's place. Stakeholders said, let's get off the station. Let's go see a, a local ranch. Would you have a at your place. Um, standing around an old water tank is when some of those kind of deep family histories and challenges came out. And, and I think that really challenged the scientists to think about who they're working with and what it's like to be a rancher in ways that I just couldn't believe the ranchers were sharing some of that information. So the trust was really there and the actual physical habitat of science is really important. Have a tour. I think a lot of us would rather be outside, but Folks that live outside are not comfortable on Zoom. They're not comfortable in front of a PowerPoint. They're just limitations to how much that really works. And so why not get in the truck and, and go look at some grass and you might kick some gravel, as my friend Ben Williams says, maybe a bit more efficient to do it that way. Well, Haley, is there anything else that you'd like to add about this topic before we get ready to close out here? Nope. If folks are interested in finding information about the project, um, the easiest thing to do is to Google Adaptive Grazing Management ARS. And there's a really great web page that has a lot of our, our data, some you know fact sheets where we've summarized what we're finding. You can check our weekly updates that go up, um, which is kind of fun. And all of the papers. So if, um, if you're looking for science on this sort of thing, any paper that has a federal scientist on it is actually available for free because of the way the copyright law works. So anything that's been published on this paper is up on that site and folks can download it. Sometimes, you know, you're looking for a paper and you're digging around the library and you hit a paywall with this project, it's all available. So thank you for providing that website. That'll be helpful, I'm sure, for the folks that are listening to us today. And thank you for joining me and uh, giving your time for this discussion. I appreciate it. I will mention that Haley will be speaking more on this topic when she makes a November 15th presentation entitled Hope on the Hard Grass. Social Ecological Lessons from the Collaborative Adaptive Rangeland Management Project in Colorado as part of the Center's Fall Seminar Series. To learn more about the series or how you may participate, go to grassland.unl.edu. Thank you for listening.